We'll begin reading in verse 1. John chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor that neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship. What we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. And when He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do come to you this morning again, earnest and eager, Father, to know you, to fellowship with you, to commune with you in your triune being, Father, Son, and Spirit, and to hear your word to us. We're eager and earnest in our need to hear your voice today. Father, as we turn our attention to this glorious chapter, Father, would you unveil for us what you had intended for us to see? Would you show us what the Spirit of Christ inspired John to write and why he wanted him to write it? That we might see and know Christ more fully, more excellently, more savingly, not, not to be saved more, but that our faith unto salvation might be even stronger and strengthened by what we see of Christ here. And we might live upon it in our daily lives. Father, we pray if there be anyone here today who, like this Samaritan woman, is burdened by guilt and sin and shame. Father, we pray for grace for that soul to see that Christ is the answer. And Father, certainly that prayer goes out for all of us. We are needy. We are struggling people. We are a sinful people by nature. But remind us this day, our hope is in Christ. Who he is, his blood, his resurrection, his intercessory work right now at your right hand. Show us Christ. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I made almost a big boo-boo last night, a big mistake. I was, as I had been working through my notes for John chapter 4 and kind of thinking through this week, just kind of the various themes and, and what this text is revealing to us of Jesus, I, I made the mistake yesterday of starting to kind of question a little bit of, am I taking the right approach with this text? And for a pastor, one of the very worst things you can do is on a Saturday night when you're just hours from preaching and you've already got kind of a, your message in place to go and look at how have other people handled this text? <laughs> and immediately you begin to look at other and listen to other sermons and look at how others have handled the text. And oftentimes it's eye-opening. It's like, uh-oh, am I preaching the wrong message? <laughs> Am I handling this text the right way? When you come to John chapter 4, this story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman, it's well known, well documented. And this text gets used for a lot of purposes. As I was kind of looking over some things last night and beginning to question the message I'm presenting to you today, you see things like the emphasis is upon the Samaritan woman. The emphasis is upon her. And we will talk about that, if not today, in the coming weeks. Or the emphasis often from this text is focused upon breaking down barriers, cultural barriers. Look at what Jesus does. He goes into enemy territory. He's breaking down barriers. Go and be Jesus. Now, there's obviously a place to where, yes, as ambassadors of Christ, what we see our king doing, we should do likewise. And I almost found myself wanting to rewrite things this morning. But then I remember John chapter 20. John chapter 20, where John himself writes these words. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Which again reminds us that what we have here was specifically chosen. There was countless other things John could have written about. But these are the things I experienced. These are the things John says I saw. These are the things I witnessed. And I'm putting these in here. Why? These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Please don't hear me saying that John chapter 4 cannot and should not be used for uh, talking about the need to break down cultural barriers or to talk about uh, the Samaritan woman and, and, or, or even how to do evangelism. That was a big emphasis. How did Jesus do evangelism here? Well, go and do likewise. I'm, don't hear me saying that you can't make application from those things. But I do believe this morning John's purpose under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was not those secondary matters. There's something in here he wants us to learn, not about the Samaritan woman, but about Christ. There's something in here he wants us to know about Christ. He's already laid a foundation in the first three chapters, and this is just going to continue to drive home for us who Christ is, that we might believe and live upon that belief savingly. Just like we talked about this morning in the prayer meeting. What does it mean to believe? To 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 turn away from all of our own righteousness, to turn away from our own stuff, our good works, to solely, solely turn to Christ. Our righteousness is in Him and Him alone. And to live upon Him as prophet, priest, and king, as our treasure. That is to believe on Jesus. And I believe as we come to this part of John's gospel, what he's giving us here is not a method for evangelism. Not fundamentally a cultural commentary on how to break down cultural barriers for Christ. Nor is he giving us here a story about a sweet Samaritan woman. The story is about Christ. It's about him. And I think the danger is we try to identify ourselves with Christ in this. That what Christ is doing, we do. Now, again, we are his ambassadors as Christians. Yes, there is a sense in which that is true. But in this story, 
We are the Samaritan woman. We're not Christ. In this story, we are what this woman characterizes. A woman who is struggling with sin. A woman who is under the weight of guilt for her sin. A woman who is ashamed because of sin in her life. A woman who comes to this well to draw water at the sixth hour, which is noon. High noon. Sun in the sky. Right overhead. Nobody else comes at this time. Why does she come at this time? It's lunacy except for the fact she has to avoid everybody else. She's so overcome with guilt and shame. She's hiding from others. She's scorned. She's alienated. Fundamentally, she is an unconverted unbeliever. And so are we by nature. And even as believers, we do still battle the very things that we see in the life of this Samaritan woman. Struggle with sin and temptation, the shame and the guilt that accompanies that, the need to hide from others, hide from God, living with that scorn if we are exposed, the shame, the guilt, the alienation. We are that woman, and to a certain degree, every one of us are battling some aspect of who she is. And John includes John chapter 4 this morning to say, this story is not about you. This story is about Christ and his sufficiency for your every need, for your every sin, your every shame, your every guilt, your every alienation. What's really remarkable about, we're looking this morning, it looks like it's only going to be the first six verses. So we're not even really going to get to the Samaritan woman yet. We're going to lay the foundation for it. But what's interesting here is that in this small little paragraph we're looking at, what John is highlighting for us about Jesus, which we will see applied in the life of this Samaritan woman, Lord willing, next week, is he highlights both Jesus' divinity as well as his humanity. And how both of those, this reality of who Christ is, as both God and man to the fullest, is exactly what both this Samaritan woman and you and I need. If he's only one or the other, then there's nothing he can bring to the Samaritan woman. But by being 100% God and 100% man, he is fully sufficient for this woman who obviously is at rock bottom for what she needs. As God, he's omniscient. And he knows things about this Samaritan woman regarding her life, her background, her thoughts, the things that she has done. And when we see Jesus' interaction, first the path that he takes to get to her and then his interaction with her, it screams of only God can know these things and bring them to bear. And then simultaneously, as man, because we're going to read about his weariness, his body being subject, subjected to exhaustion, it screams to us of his human nature, his ability to identify with the Samaritan woman, with her struggles, with her hurts, with the alienation. He's able to identify. So for this woman who has nowhere else to turn. She comes to the well at noon to avoid everywhere, everybody. Here comes one who fully knows her, and that would be a bad thing, except that he's also fully like her and knows the struggle. Though he never broke the law, no, he never sinned. And this one is able to bring to her what he called the living water that will satisfy her, that will fix her, that will make her whole again. John chapter 4, there's a lot of application we can make culturally, evangelistically, missionally, and some of that's right. But fundamentally, you can't get to any of those places until we are convinced first and foremost of the sufficiency of Christ as 100% God, 100% man. Let's look together at the text. Look again at verses 1 through 5. John chapter 4, verse 1 through 5. Now, when Jesus learned 
that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. The first thing I want us to see this morning, we're just looking at these two aspects of Jesus' character. First, the divine omniscience of Jesus. He knows. He knows all. And we see this when what the Apostle John reminds us here is that something he's already told us. But it needs to be reminded to us. Jesus has intimate, perfect knowledge of all things, all things, perfect, intimate. There is nothing about this world that he made that he does not know. There is nothing about the persons that he made in his image, you and I, that he doesn't know. There's not a thought you have. There's not an action you do. There's nothing you do under the cover of darkness or in alienation. There is nothing he doesn't know. It's exactly what he laid out for us in John chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. I'm sure you remember these words. When Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, to which you want to say, amen, yes, they're following Jesus, verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, <coughs> did not entrust himself to them. So they are following him, saying, you're our king, you're our master, you're our Lord. And if we don't read verse 24, we think, this is awesome. It's not awesome. Verse 24 says, but he didn't entrust himself to them. Why? That seems so cruel. Verse 25. He didn't need anyone to bear witness about those people because he knew what was in them. He knew. He knows omnisciently. He's God. He knows, yes, they're following him and they're saying all the right things, but he knows their hearts. And he knows that in their hearts, their, their mouths are saying things, but they don't believe it. They're not living it. They're not treasuring him. They're just like Nicodemus who came under the cover of darkness and said all the right things. And what did Jesus say to Nicodemus? You must be born again. Jesus knows what's in the hearts of all men. Which you and I just need to wrestle with this morning. On a very personal and practical level. It's great we're here this morning as the church of Christ. But we're not perfect. We have our own battles, our own struggles. We're here under the cover of church. We sure hope everyone doesn't know. And maybe everyone doesn't know, but Christ knows. He knows perfectly. Here in verse 1, Jesus knows the Pharisees had heard what Jesus' disciples had heard and John the Baptist's disciples had heard, that he was now out baptizing John the Baptist. We saw that a couple of verses ago. He had in intimate knowledge of what the Pharisees knew about his ministry. He knew that what John the Baptist's followers saw, that this Jesus and his disciples are baptizing more than you, John the Baptist, to which John the Baptist says, that's perfect. That's what it should be. My whole life is to exalt him. He must be increased. I must de decrease. This is exactly how it should be. So now they know, but now the Pharisees are also recognizing. Well, now, we were going after John the Baptist, but this Jesus fellow over here, Saying a lot of the same things, but he's gotten a bigger. And Jesus knows now the Pharisees' attention has turned to him. The Pharisees, the, the, the diabolical thoughts that they had for John the Baptist, now they are turned to Jesus. And he knows that their intention is to, at best, run him out of town, and worst, kill him. <clears throat> so the Lord knows about their desires. He knows. Let me just pause there for a minute. We talk about this often, just because John takes us there often. There's nothing shared so thus far this morning you didn't already know. Usually our problem is not one of knowledge. 
Our problem is one of application. What are you doing with this daily reminder? Everything about you, Christ knows. Perfect in righteousness, perfect in holiness. God incarnate, he knows. Does it force you to deal with your sin? Are you? And when we talk about dealing with your sin, please understand that's not a, oh no. It's a, yes, it is a painful process, but it's also a Christian process. Dealing with your sin means appropriating the cross of Christ, going to your mediator, going to the cross, going to the blood, confessing, repenting. Maybe this needs to be said. God does not expect you to be perfect right now. Now, I need to be careful in the way that I say that. But what you ultimately will be perfect in glory is not what you are now. Now, when I say God doesn't expect you to be perfect, that is not a license to say, oh, well, good, thanks for saying that. I feel better. I can go and sin. No, 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 no. You belong to a king who demands your loyalty, who demands your obedience. But recognizing that we will not be perfect until we reach glory, God has given us the cross. And when we sin, Christ knows. And the expectation is not that we just pound our head against the pavement. How that stupid, 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 stupid? Yes, it is stupid. But don't just, you run to the cross. You go, you confess, you lay it at the cross. You cry out, my only hope is Christ. Even if I try to mix being a good person and good works and try to make up for what I did wrong by, let me flip the switch now and be nice, it doesn't work. You've got to go to the cross and you've got to confess. And that's the Christian thing to do. That's what Christians do. And that's what this knowledge of Christ's knowledge of you and me, that's what application looks like. It should be a siren going off in our head. If I commit this sin, Christ knows. And most of the time, there will be consequences for what you do. It is very rare. Very rare for the king to allow one of his citizens to walk in betrayal of him and not be consequences. There will be. So go to the cross. Go to the cross. Cry out to God, this is who I am. This is my struggle. If anything's going to change, you're going to have to do it. Enamor me with Christ. Enamor me with a greater love for Christ than I have for my sin or myself or whatever it is. How are we appropriating this truth that, again, we're just seeing it again? Are you dealing with the sin that Christ knows about? Here's another application. Worship. Worship. Now, that may not always be your first instinct because if you're like me, oh, my goodness, somebody knows every detail about me, my thought life. I'm, I, it's horrific. I'm horrified. And again, the cross is the way to deal with that. But is there not also a sense of who is this God? Who is this one who knows everything? Has it expanded your worship? Increased your, your confidence in him? The fact that he knows everything, it's not just he knows the bad things, he also knows your situation. He knows your lot in life. When you feel like nobody knows, nobody understands, it's just not true. We have an omniscient God who knows, who sees. And that should give you hope. It should give you reason to, it's my feelings and, and, that are telling me nobody hears, nobody knows, nobody understands, I'm by myself. But it's a lie. It's undermining the very character of God. One of his attributes is his omniscience. And for us to wallow in self-pity, nobody knows, nobody sees, nobody cares, is a lie that Satan just wants us to believe, to deny God his glory. He does know. And he has provided everything you need in a person, Jesus of Nazareth. I take the time to just talk about application there this morning because, again, the first part of this message is nothing new. 
That was part of my struggle last night when I was, I was kind of thinking about, hmm, am I handling this the right way? Because there's a lot of repetition here. He knows everything. Why repeat this again? Because we're hard-headed. Because we're like little children. Dylan, how many times do I have to tell you to throw away the wrapper? All right, it's not usually me, it's mama. How many times does mama have to tell you to throw away the wrapper? Ryan, how many times does mama have to tell you put your clothes in the laundry? Jake, how many times does your wife have to tell you put your laundry away in the drawers? Where they go? Get them off the bed, get them off the couch. Why does my dear sweet wife have to waste so many breaths on these things? Because she's in a house full of hard-headed men. And that's why we have again being reminded who our king is. He knows. He is God. His knowledge of you and your life and your situation and your sin is perfect. Oh, worship this king. Oh, repent of sin. Jesus knew. He knew what the Pharisees were thinking about him. And so verse, again in verse 3, John chapter 4, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So, again, because of this possible threat from the Pharisees, again, now he's their target. It's not that he's afraid of them. Jesus came to die. He knows exactly that these very ones will be the ones to kill him. So he's running, not fleeing for his life. He's not running scared. He's running because, and this is an important theme here, according to God's eternal plans and purposes, the time has not yet come. They're going to get him. And by that, I mean Christ is going to give himself up to them. But now's not the time. So he's not fleeing scared. He's fleeing because I'm doing my father's will. He has a plan and a purpose. And it does involve, they're going to get their hands on me, and they're going to crucify me, they're going to kill me. But before then, there's still work that my father has given me to do. And so I'm going to head north. Why north? Because that's where the Father's sending me. And he has to go through Samaria. Why? Because there's a divine appointment there that I know about. I know all. I know my Father. I know his will. I know his plans. I know his purposes. I know it all. And I have to go through Samaria. The reality is he didn't have to go through Samaria. Uh, a little bit of a history lesson kind of helps us understand this. And some of you are probably familiar with this aspect of John chapter 4. Jesus, when he's fleeing from the Pharisees, is down here in Ju Judea. Right? Judea down here to the south. Part of Palestine. And Judea is the place that's where Jerusalem is. That's where the temple is. And so now he's leaving there, heading north to Galilee. Now, so if you picture, here's Judea. Here's Galilee. And then right here in the middle, Samaria. And that's the problem. Because it's that Samaritan people in the middle that the Jews have a big problem with. Going all the way back to the Old Testament, God brought judgment upon the Jews because of the rebellion against him. And God sent in 722 B.C. the Assyrian army to go and raid, if you will, the ten tribes of Israel. God brought judgment on them because of their disobedience. You can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 17. The, te the text says in verses 23 and 24, Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. So you see, there you had in Samaria, or in that location, you had the Jews. The Assyrians came and raided, deported, if you will, 
a good number of the Jews out of that region and imported foreigners in. So what had once been Israel territory and devoted to the worship of God, some of that had been deported out under the judgment of God, and these uh, foreigners had been brought in, and with them comes what? Their culture. With them comes their idols, their religion, their worship, their way of life. And so as time passes, what you have left in this territory is the remnant of Jews that were left behind, that were not deported out, and now these foreigners who were brought in. And given enough time, these two groups began to mix and mingle, began to marry one another, creating another race. A mix between the Jews and this Gentile branch. They began to marry and have children and raise their families. Well, my religious background is to the one true God. Well, my religious background is to this God, this deity. Well, let's bring them together. And it creates this kind of a syncretistic religion. And so you can imagine that for the true Jews, they looked upon this Samaritan race as unclean. As a people who had betrayed the one true God, even though they themselves had done so in their hearts, but betrayed the one true God. And now the Samaritan people became filthy, dirty. Even in the laws of the Jews, to touch a Samaritan would make you unclean. And that's why the Samaritan woman, if we fast forward a little bit around about verse 9, says to Jesus, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That's, that was by and large the truth. So for a Jews down in Judea to get to Galilee, and you got Samaria there in the middle, unclean, most every route of transportation went east and around or west and around. That was the common route. All of that background, with that in mind, makes verse 4 stick out. You kind of have to know that to, to read verse 4 and then read where it says, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. He had to. Kind of sounds like there's a decree there, doesn't it? Kind of sounds like he doesn't have an option not to. It's actually the same word going back to the previous chapter. Chapter 3, right, Jesus with Nicodemus. When Jesus says to Nicodemus in chapter 3, verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. It's a necessity, Nicodemus, for all that you've got, all your credential, all your real, you must, it's a necessity, you must be born again. Otherwise, you cannot have place in the kingdom of God. It's the same word we see down in verse 14 of chapter 3. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It's a divine necessity. Nicodemus, if you're not born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. If the Son of Man is not lifted up on the cross like the serpent in the wilderness, there is no salvation for anybody. These must happen. Now we come to chapter 4, verse 4. Jesus had to go to Samaria. He must go. Well, says who? Says God. Says his Father, the one whose will, he says in John 17, I did all that the Father sent me to do. Pause. Pause right there for a moment. We live in such a transient world, don't we? Coming and going, picking up our things, moving to a different house, different city, different state, sometimes different nation. It's common today to, to, for, for the movements we make to think just in terms of it's, it's just no big deal. This Jesus going to Galilee by way of Samaria is a massive deal in this sense. It was decided he would go there before the foundation of the world. <laughs> this was a conversation between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 
that in the fullness of time, after Jesus comes into his public ministry, born in a manger, born of a virgin, grown, begins his public ministry, baptized, change water into wine, clear out the temple, have that conversation with Nicodemus, some of the other things that go on in between this time, before the foundation of the world, this conversation was, now on this date and this time, not because the Pharisees are chasing you, it's time to move on. I've got a divine appointment. The next appointment is in Samaria at Jacob's well. Jesus must go there because in eternity past, it was ordained by God. There will be a woman there at Jacob's well go back and read Genesis even the foundation of that is, again not that wasn't there because of this but it sets the foundation of all that God is doing there same well it goes all the way back to Genesis there was a divine appointment for Jesus to meet this sinful guilt-ridden ashamed alienated forsaken woman who has no hope who is so hopeless and helpless and estranged that she has to go to the well at high noon just to avoid everybody else. And eternity passed. God laid claim upon this woman. Salvation comes only through Christ. And Christ, you will go to that well. And you will meet with her. You must pass through Samaria. We're seeing the divine omniscience of Christ, aren't we? He had to leave. Yes, because of what he knew from the Pharisees knew. But also because he had a divine appointment with this woman in Samaria. It's interesting to pause right there. We could rush right on to his meeting with the Samaritan woman but I think you and I can be greatly helped by realizing what we just talked about. By realizing our triune God's infinite, ultimate, personal care of each and every one of our lives. You and I are not often good at framing our lives and our present day situations. I stink at it our present-day situations in light of the eternal plans and purposes of God. When we read and study about things like God's sovereignty, we can, our minds can begin to expand, our vocabulary can get more colorful, the songs we sing can become more meaningful. But all of that is hollow and empty. If we can't take that theological concept and bring it to bear upon your daily experience and recognize that what we know about God, sovereign, providential, eternal, everything known before the foundation of the world, everything planned out, every step, every word, every thought, every encounter, every situation, it is not chaotic, it is not chance luck. Everything in your life and mine, the timing of it is ordained by an infinite God in eternity past. And there is nothing in your life, and we use this Samaritan woman as example A here, there is nothing in your life or my life that escapes his attention. He knows all. There is nothing too small, nothing too big for him to be disinterested in. It is his nature. It is who he is. And every encounter you have or every encounter you don't have, every experience you have or every experience you don't have, everything that you get or everything that you don't get is divinely appointed by God. Everything. Sometimes we forget to be thankful. We forget to be thankful that for our minuscule lives that oftentimes feel so insignificant and hollow and weighty, and why am I even here, and what's going on? Again, that's, that's our flesh. That's the work of the enemy trying to rob us of 
the great narrative of our lives. Now, though Jacob was born in 1976, 43 years old, I'll save you the math, 1976, my life was known in eternity past every day, every encounter, every step, every breath. Now, it confuses the heck out of me down here and spirals me into all kinds of things, and the same is true for you. But thank God that my life is not meaningless. Your life isn't meaningless. It is ordained by a God who knows all, who is sovereign over all. Even our salvation. You remember Acts chapter 8, Philip. Philip is sent. Though great revival is happening there in Jerusalem, God sends Philip, go, get out of there. Go, I got somewhere else for you. Go to Ethiopia. Why? This is where all the fun is. Go. Go to Ethiopia. There's nothing there. Go. Now, he, it doesn't appear he was having as hard a time with it as I would, but he goes. And what does he find there? It just so happens that when he gets there and he's walking along, there's an Ethiopian eunuch just sitting out in the middle of nowhere and just so happens to have an Old Testament scroll. And it just so happens to be open to Isaiah chapter 53. Which just so happens to be Isaiah's prophecy about salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Going all the way back to the Old Testament. And it just so happens that the eunuch who's reading this, his heart is opened enough to say, I'm reading this, I'm enchanted by it, but someone's going to have to explain it to me, I don't know. And it just so happens, Philip, one who under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is perfectly able to explain these things and to bring this individual to faith in Christ as God draws him there. That divine appointment there in Ethiopia was not, hey, hey, Philip, I just recognized something happening over here in Ethiopia. I, I, come on, come on, now, he's, he's here now, go, go. If you time it quickly, if you get this many miles every day, you'll get there in time. That eunuch wasn't going anywhere. He was right where he was supposed to be, when he should have been, had the resources he needed, and Philip was brought along exactly step by step by step. Today I'm not feeling very well. I don't know if I can go any further. I need to lie down. Well, it's going to throw me back off track. It's going to throw me a little bit behind in the schedule. It's all in the providence of God. Get up the next morning, step, 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 and it just so happens. The timing is perfect. Glory doesn't go to Philip. Glory doesn't go to the eunuch. The glory goes to a God who knows all, who's sovereign over all. How is it between your soul and the sovereignty of God? I don't think I have to say it, but I think you know that this is a sticking point for a lot of people. It was for all of us at one point, if it's not now. How does hearing about God's sovereignty over your life, his knowledge of you perfect, his ordaining everything in your life perfectly according to his, per even if you right now, as you sit here, don't understand it, don't get it, can't connect the dots, feel hopeless, feel helpless, feel like you're spiraling out of control. How does hearing about God's perfect, not just awareness over your situation, his perfect activity and ordaining. Everything is happening in your life so perfectly that you are exactly where he intends you to be right now. By divine plan. How does that move your soul to respond to God? Does it at all? It should inspire awe and reverence. Greater wonder. I do think it's important for us from, in all things, to put our lives in the context of the greater narrative of the Bible. Your life, my life, is not confined to 1976 to whenever it will be. That's not my life. My experience is not confined to the last six months or the last six years. Those things have to be put in a proper context of an eternal God who's sovereign 
and the very year, the very timing, all those things play into that. And it's for his glory, it's for our good. And ultimately, by putting it in the full, going back to the foundation of the world and what we will be in eternity, we, are, we don't lose hope. The God who got me here and brought Christ into my life, I'm getting a little bit into the next week, but brought Christ to me at this, at this exact time, is the God who he began the good work. We'll see it through to completion. It's the Romans 8 passage we read. He who predestined you, who's called you, justified you, sanctified you, will glorify you. Wherever we are in the story right now, it's not the end of the story. And if you try to interpret your story or your situation only in light of what you can see, you're always going to be hopeless. You've got to fix your eyes upwards to a God, a creator, a king who is eternal. Who has plans and purposes for you that he knows omnisciently. And you and I don't. But instead of leaving us to wallow, oh poor people, if only knew what I knew, you'd be back. He's given us everything we need for this season in himself. Or in, when those seasons come, if they do. In your life, you may feel like nobody knows. It's a lie. Nothing escapes his attention. Nothing escapes his attention. All throughout history, all throughout your life, every step, everything has been a divine encounter that finds its origin before anything was. Right now, God is doing literally thousands of things, hundreds of thousands, millions of things. And they are all working together. And your life is part of that. My life is part of that. And we can't begin to see and understand how the whole thing works together. Now. But he does. And he never makes a mistake. He never needs to use an eraser. He never needs to go back and white out or delete. Everything has a perfect purpose and a reason. We do struggle with the sovereignty of God sometimes. Usually in certain aspects, sovereignty of God and salvation. How foolish that is. How foolish. Fighting against God's sovereignty, against his providence. I look back now and I'm like, why would I reject that? If he's not in control, then this is a chaotic mess and there's no hope at all. But being that he is, it does produce peace in your life. I'm not saying it makes whatever you're going through or will be going through, I'm not saying it makes it go away. It may not be his intention for it to go away. It may be his intention for his glory and your good and for the good of how he intends to use it in the life of another or for his kingdom for you to continue in that. And for the duration of your life, you will be suffering, you will be going very well, and he has the right to do that. But also because he's sovereign, not only can you have peace in your life, you don't have to try and figure everything out. Are you a planner? Are you one of those people, I, I, gotta, I gotta be in the know, I gotta know everything. Well, in your relationship with God, you're going to be a little unhappy. There's an infinite number of things he knows, and he's not going to tell you. And in that part of our faith, I die to myself, I die to my wants, I die to my pride that says I got to be in the know, I got to. There's one who's in the know, and he's perfect, and I can trust him. I'm not saying it's easy, but whatever situation you're in or have been in or will be in, can you not see how an understanding of God's sovereignty, his control of your life brings at least hope and peace and knowing that I'm going to be taken care of because of Christ. 
for you and I as we go through these things. Our job is not to stress through life's what ifs. Not to stress through life's failures. Not to wallow in self-pity. Not to live like the Samaritan woman who lives her life every day going to the well at high noon just because she can't get out from under the guilt, the shame, the alienation, what everybody knows about her. The Christian life is one to be lived as she will find out, looking to Jesus, clinging to Jesus, holding on to Jesus, finding your hope in him, finding such a satisfaction in him, Lord, take my life and let it be consecrated to thee. In you I have enough. If you want to take my life and my life never matches up to the life of somebody else, if I never get what this person gets or that person gets, if I have you. But to get there, what do you have to have? You've got to know this Christ. You've got to know his fullness. You truly have to be given eyes that see and treasure him more than anything else. And that's what John 4 is all about. Christ did many things, told many stories, but these things, John says, I write that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And having believing, you live your life upon these things. All I've done this morning is lay the foundation, really, of the meat of the story to come. It won't be about the Samaritan woman. It won't be about evangelism. It won't be about breaking down cultural barriers. It will be about what you and I and everyone needs fundamentally. Christ. The sovereign God knows what we need. And he's given us what we need in Christ. That's why he has to go through Samaria. What the Samaritan woman needs, what you and I need.